With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. All right, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of the Teardown. My name is Jeff Luck. And normally I am joined by Jordan Bianchi, my co-worker. He will be on this podcast, but later, big day of motorsports, Indianapolis 500 and the Coca-Cola 600. So we are dividing this podcast into two because we are uh, at different locations, different sites, different times. So I'm very, very pleased to be joined by my former colleague and longtime friend, Nate Ryan of NBC. Nate, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jeff. Even more swell because I'm here at Indianapolis Motor Speedway, one of our favorite places in the world, and one of my favorite people doing this podcast, which is one of my favorite things. And when I just heard you do the big, all right, like it immediately triggers that, you know, I think of your EDM intro, and I think, <laughs> man, it's sad. No snake pit this year, but at least we were a little bit closer to normal. We didn't have Diplo or whoever you love out there playing for the all the kids, the 30,000 kids out there in a the snake pit. But maybe we'll have that in 2022. We did have 135,000 fans in a great race. And you know what? That's that's the thing. Like, this race did not need anything else. Like, this race only had two cautions, right? Uh, it didn't have, like, a lot of, you know, there, was, there wasn't, there um, was there was no, nothing sort of, uh, I guess, like, I don't, I don't want to already go with, like, the gimmicky type word. But there was nothing, it, this was just a pure auto race to me. Like, this was just as straight up as it gets. You know what I mean? Like, they started the race. The race was 500 miles. There was some fuel strategy. There was other things. There was good racing. And that was all it needed because I, it was one of my favorite races of the year. Uh, my favorite Indy 500s in recent years. We haven't gotten to talk about it yet. I, I'm, You know, you have a much better memory of these things than I do. But, I mean, the, aside from uh, Elio winning, which we'll get to, I, I just thought it was a, a great day all around. It was the quintessential Indy 500 in a lot of ways. But in a lot of other ways, it was one of the most unpredictable Indy 500s I've ever seen. But yet, to your point, Jeff, like this was quintessential in every way. What you'd expect from the Brickyard, as you said, huge test of man and machine. Um, We saw the best drivers in IndyCar putting their skills to the absolute maximum. And despite all that, there was only one real caution flag. Uh, well, there were two, but there was only one for an, a, a true on-track incident. We had the Stephen Wilson spin in the pits, but the only on-track incident really was Graham Rahal, and that was because of a, a, a wheel popping off. I right. mean, think about this. These guys made 200 laps around this place for 500 miles, the fastest Indy 500 in history. Uh, and granted, conditions were cooler today, so that allowed for max grip. And you know, Scott Dixon had been predicting since Friday that this was going to be one of the most memorable Indy 500s in history because guys be able to put their cars in places that they wouldn't always be able to, you know, they're in recent history that the races here have been run in really hot conditions with a slick track. And I don't think they've been able to showcase their talents as much as they were today. And uh, yeah, there's just, there's so much to unpack. I totally agree with you. And I agree with you on the purity of the racing. I think that that's something that IndyCar prides itself on. The, the officials and the stewards, they pride themselves on the fact that 
Um, they are as much tilted toward the purity side, maybe as NASCAR is toward the entertainment side. And I think both sanctioning bodies take grief for that, uh, sometimes rightly so on both sides. But I think this, the way this race unfolded and played out was a testament to uh, IndyCar's adherence to purity as part of its racing philosophy. Because, yeah, I, I think what we saw today was just, again, quintessential Indy 500. Yeah, and, and you know, you had a couple spins on, on pit road, but like you said, other than that, I mean, it, it just it just played out. Um, and what I I guess I'm sort of fascinated by is you know this is a race where like it, and it, I, I've so I've watched so much NASCAR lately, and you know I've been a NASCAR all year, all year long. And, and when you come to a race like this, it, it sort of reminds you because you know the two potentially the two biggest threats or two of the biggest threats early in the race, Scott Dixon and Alexander Rossi, you know, uh, run out of fuel because of of the spin on pit road with Stefan Wilson. They're not able to pit. Then they finally come. They get trapped lap down because they ran out of fuel. And, you know, I had NASCAR fans, you know, they were, they were, they're not super familiar with IndyCar racing. They're like, so do they get a free pass? Like, how do they get their lap back? And it was like, nope, they have to race their way back onto the lead lap. Like, that's the only way they can do it. But, and, you know, Dixon ended up almost putting himself in decent position to do it uh, or, or to get it done late in the race. But, you know, the bottom line is like, there's really nothing to save you when you make a mistake. Where, like, in NASCAR, you sort of know, like, hey, you're going to have a guaranteed caution for stage breaks. Or you can you can almost strategize about it. Like, there's there's so many times in NASCAR races where somebody, you know, all the speeding penalty, they go to the back and they come back through. And that's part of the storyline. But here, it's like, you you do one thing, you're done. Like, I mean, Graham, Graham Rahal's thing was a, a pretty big thing, leaving the wheel off. That's more than a big mistake. But, like, you know, willpower uh, spinning out. That's it. Yep. It's instantly race over. As yep. soon as he spins out on pit road, he's done. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and you can't recover. Speeding penalty for Scott McLaughlin or Felix, Ro- Felix Rosenquist. As soon as that happens, like, no coming back from that. Sorry. <laughs> like, yep. Sorry, rookie. In Scott McLaughlin's case, you ran really well, but your days is, is pretty much over. And, um, yeah, like, for your listeners who I know are all NASCAR America watchers, uh, we used to have this thing, and we still do it, um, but it used to be a weekly feature that Steve Wittart would do called the turning point of the race. And Stevie's point is that every race has a turning point, whether it's recognizable or not. And that's where the whole complexion of the race changes. And that's, you know, the, pretty much the, the fulcrum of everything, like sort of rests right there. Like that, that's how the outcome is determined. And you're right. Like to me, that lap 34 caution for Stefan Wilson's spin in the pits, that was the turning point of the entire race because it yeah. took out the fastest car of not just the race, not just the pulse that are not just qualifying. Scott Dixon was the fastest driver in five of the last 10 practice or qualifying sessions here. And he wow. just, you knew that he just had the class of the field car, but you also knew that something possibly go wrong. And I definitely want to get into like, you know, why hasn't he won more than one Indy 500 when he's led more times than anybody in Indy 500 history. It's crazy. But to go back to your point, and to apply this to NASCAR a little bit, because uh, I think that's interesting, the feedback you were getting from your followers and, and readers and fans there. This is my issue, and I understand why NASCAR does things the way they do, and I understand that uh, like they predicate a lot of things on entertainment, and they have a huge track record of success for that, and I'm not going to quibble with a lot of it. But a race like this, and you know the outcome for Dixon and Rossi, who, again, both just got extremely hurt by this caution flag, that's my case for... When the situation at Kansas a few weeks ago, where NASCAR had that weird thing where they waited, waited, waited mm-hmm. uh, for that tire, and then waited for Chris Busher to finally pit, and then threw the caution, 
to me, this race like explains like why NASCAR should just either throw the caution or you don't. You don't wait out a pit cycle because, as you as you mentioned, the Cup teams have 483 ways to get a lap back. If yeah. if the caution comes out the wrong time and it burns a bunch of teams that had already pitted before that cycle, you know, and during the course of that cycle, too bad. Mm-hmm. And to me, this race today kind of exhibits like you know why that's a good strategy um and indycar teams to your point like they don't have those uh they don't have that dispensation for getting laps back and and you know it's i think it still makes it compelling i I, i'm sure that if you pulled indycar fans today you're not going to find a lot of them that say oh man scott dixon like you know why wasn't he allowed to just like take his race winning car which oh by the way you know he was playing it conservative um, his team was and that you know they backed off in the first 30 laps and they waited to pit uh, later in that first green flag cycle and you know that was the smart play but it hurt them because yep. that was a decision the, the, and the crash in pit lane if that crash doesn't happen in pit lane the pits open a lot earlier and he's able to pit and you know the vapor lock doesn't happen he doesn't stall his car out um, like I like as I'm sure you do I think this is what you're getting at there's this cascading sort of butterfly effect from it that feels to your point again natural Pure. Yes, and what also happened during that, as a result of that, on the other side was Connor Daly got track position early in the race. He, I think, he'd started nineteenth, and he wasn't necessarily going to, you know, maybe he was making f- progress a couple spots, but he wasn't all the way up to third. But when he, because of that incident and the way that the timing fell with the caution, um, and when he pitted or whatever, he ends up restarting third, gets up to the lead shortly thereafter, and then he ends up leading two huge stints early in the race, which. Again, you're like, wow, if, if all, again, going back to the Stefan Wilson thing, if that doesn't happen, Connor Daly's not out front. Um, and now, like, Palau and uh, VK, they were still kind of up there and were up there anyway. But there were some other names that got brought into that because of it. And it's just sort of, but that's that's racing, right? That's part of the race. So Exactly. Um, yeah, and I don't remember, I, maybe you do, um, I, I think Elio started eighth. And so he, I think he was still right around up there. Like, I don't think that that caution had a huge impact on him. Uh, maybe he gains a couple spots there as a result of that, but. Right, right. I think he had pitted before. And, you know, like I said, like Herta, Dixon pretty much backed off in the opening laps mm-hmm. to allow Herta and VK to just dice for the lead over the first right. 30 He's laps. like, I'm going to save fuel. Exactly. That's that's his bag. He's very, he's extremely fast. He's a six-time series champion for a reason, but he also is probably the best at fuel conservation it, maybe not in IndyCar now, but in IndyCar history. I mean, there's nobody better at maximizing fuel mileage than, than Scott Dixon. So, again, it was the smart play, but yet it burned him. Like, mm-hmm. he got burned for doing the right thing. The guys who pitted ahead of that, like, when the caution came out, it looked like VK and Herta and, I believe, Elio. Like, all these guys who had pitted, they were in trouble, and it actually worked out the opposite way. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the, the short pit, long pit thing in, in NASCAR, which, you know, Latart's always talking about calls it really well on on nbc broadcast you know just like hey this is you know this is the risk they're taking here by staying out one extra lap or not you know and i mean you know the caution can always come out but like you said i think there's there's less chance to be saved by it um in a race like this especially i mean now there could have been more cautions i mean this was i think the fewest cautions ever in Indy 500 history so you would maybe expect more to possibly save you and then maybe you can play strategy off that but just wasn't the case i i I liked how it it was like we saw several cycles of okay you know the chevys like the ecr cars they've got a pit 
30 laps into it and the other cars can go longer. What impact is that going to have? And, um, you know, I, I saw some people on Twitter saying, I'm tired of hearing about fuel, but the drivers had told us going into it, this is going to be a fuel savings race. I don't think you want to lead. I mean, that was all the talk before. Yeah, they laid it completely out. And every race in IndyCar these days is a fuel conservation battle to some extent. Like, they're they're doing it from the drop of the green. And I know, I, I understand fans who don't really want to hear that much. And, you know, I mean, look at Formula One. They take fuel completely out of the equation and just let their drivers go, you know, full bore and make it about tire wear um, instead of including fuel strategies. So I think there's a point to be made there. But, like... Yeah, to your point, like that, there wasn't a caution flag over the final 76 laps, and there was only one over the final 155 laps. Uh, I mean, I didn't feel cheated that there weren't more restarts or that there weren't more. You know, there wasn't more of that kind of action, uh, like with the, the green. You know, they keep restacking the field and let's go again, let's go again. I mean, I think you hit it. Like, it was great to sort of watch it unfold and know that like some cars were on this strategy, some were on this one. Daily came into the mix and was a huge factor midway through the race. And then with like 40 or 50 to go, suddenly it just, it, it suddenly just became apparent that this was going to be a three car battle, Castro Neves, Polo and award, Pato award. And then Pagano kind of joined the mix in the last 15 laps. But Mm -hmm. I mean, Castro Neves drove a brilliant race at age 46. I mean, we saw, he took his place among the pantheon of Indy 500 winners today, you know, becoming the fourth, fourth, uh, the fourth four-time winner of this race, this, you know, prestigious, ultimate, biggest race in the world. You know, Rick Mears, Al Unser, AJ Foyt, and Elio Castroneves. And people yeah. who who might be casual racing fans might say, Ah, does Elio Castroneves? Does that does he belong with like Foyt and Mears and Unser? Yes, he like. He is one of the greatest drivers here ever, and he showed why today. I mean, uh, we heard Mike Shank, his team owner, talking about afterward that this is why they went and got Elio, because they mm-hmm. noticed, they were watching video of him, they were, they saw things he was doing in traffic, even though he's in his mid-40s, and all the talk now is about drivers 20 years younger in IndyCar, like like Herta and Polo and Award and VK. Uh, Elio still gets it done. I mean, he, I, he seems to have lost none of his ability and yet he has become, and I think this part of his game gets highly overlooked because he's got this kind of cartoonish caricature type personality. Yeah. Um, he's, he's as much of a thinking man's driver as anybody, and he showed it today. Well, he set up, he set up Pelot perfectly. I mean, it was just the, the perfect chess move. And they, and they said they could tell he was playing chess with, you know, 40, 50 laps to go. And, and uh, they, the, owner, the team owners both said, like, they kind of got like this reassurance this calm about it um that you know like hey he's he we, he knows what he's doing out there and he's got a plan and once they could see that it was like oh this is this is gonna maybe fall right to us you know yeah and but you know even there it seemed so much i mean i remember tweeting with maybe 12 13 laps ago i still was like this is really in doubt i don't really know what's gonna happen here it's sort of like a three four-way battle for the lead and really by the way nobody got away all race too so i'll go back to something we just talked about in that we enjoyed watching it unfold but part of that was because it was always competitive it was no nobody ever got like some five second lead or i don't think anybody like led that. by more than a second yeah hardly I mean, at all all day i no. can't remember anybody leading my it seemed like it was two tenths to six tenths all day long yeah yeah uh, the, the, the second place car was always in frame 
And, and that uh, makes it compelling. I mean, hugely. I wouldn't be saying this maybe the same way. Like, I really enjoyed playing out naturally if they were all strung out and nobody could pass. Um, the, the, the arrow package, you know, they, they got more downforce this year. It worked. I mean, and, and the cool temperatures combined, those two things combined, I, I think it really worked. Um, tied for the most lead changes since the 2017 race. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it was uh, – but anyway, so, I you know, when, once Elio makes that pass with two to go, you know, you could see it coming. You know, the, the announcers on NBC got, like, super excited. He was coming off turn four, and he, he kind of gets them right at the start-finish line as they're coming to two to go, and it was just like he yeah. just won. It was, you it know? was over. Yeah, and, and Pagano said it more than once in post-race, too. He said what you – echoed what you said Mike Shank was talking about as well, that he could tell – that Elio was toying with Polo in a sense. He was mm-hmm. like, as Pagano put it, you know, Polo showed all his cards too early, and uh, you know, Polo who's starting his second Indy 500. Right. Elio Castroneves is in his 21st Indy 500, so it's <laughs> yeah. almost unfair to like have this mano a mano duel between this. I mean, Alex Polo hadn't even run an oval until last year, and he's a Spaniard who grew up on uh, street and road courses and all these Euro and international racing series. He hadn't even seen an oval till last year. So, I mean, give the, the kid like a lot of leeway here on getting beat by one of the all-time indie masters. But yet it still was fun to watch the way Elio was able to do this and dissect it. You know, and, and Pagano said that he bet that Polo will probably rewatch this ending uh a lot and and learn what happened i asked polo after you know are you gonna he was like yeah i'm gonna rewatch this ending probably every day from now until detroit in two weeks and i'm sure that um you know he's he's a really smart kid he'll probably come back here with a lot more knowledge on how to how to fend Helio off elio off next time yeah well it's not unlike um denny hamlin at daytona going against like some totally inexperienced person who's never really done much in the draft before or something exactly. where like you know denny can just set him up and you know if he needs to drop back or whatever i mean uh, you know, the draft is not quite the same here, but you still have to make that move, the winning move type thing. And Elio has experience doing it. He knows what he's doing. And he was able to watch Polo for lap after lap. And he, he wasn't going to rush it. He was going to... Now, the danger of that is, of course, if a caution came out like it did for Dixon right. last year, um, the race is over and he's run out of time. But uh, maybe you can't really race like that. You know, maybe you have to say... Look, if I'm going to win this race, I, I can't make that move with five to go because I'm going to get right. passed back. So there's some degree of luck involved, but again, I'll go back to Elio's smart. Like he knew there had been only two cautions. That's true. Uh, you know, through the first however many when that battle started with Polo was probably about 15 to go. So I'm sure he's factoring that in and thinking I've got time. I don't need to force the issue. And as he said afterward, he timed it perfectly. And that he knew they were going to hit that traffic. They hit that wall of traffic mm-hmm. right after Elio made the pass. And then suddenly, you know, traffic in this case was great for him because he could just draft off people and just pick his way through. And you know, he could, I think he took the air off of Polo entering like you know the, on last lap, one of the the corners there. He just he played it perfectly. Let's talk about uh, what I'll I'm sure many of us will always remember from this day, which is the the fan reaction, the crowd reaction. Yes, I mean. I I went up on this um, this sort of like perch uh, that's sort of like above Victory Lane. I'm jealous. Um, you were taking I, photos of me from up there, and I was like, I man, did. I wish I had that vantage point. <laughs> Jeff's so much better at this than I am. No, no. <laughs> I I'd, um, it was led out to it uh, last year pre-race in in August, um, 
and and so I was like, I'll, I'll just go out there again and see if I can watch the finish and, you know, get some color and things like that. And, uh, you know, I got out there and, and he pulled his car up to the start finish line and, you know, he gets out and the fans start cheering. And then, he, you know, he runs for the fence. And once he starts climbing and everybody realized what was happening, it's see on the screen. I mean, the wall of like noise, I, 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 I assume that 2001 um, Pepsi 400 noise was probably louder than that just because that was just like this massive thing but since i've been covering motorsports 2004 now i i'm not sure i've ever heard a louder like cheer at that moment like the roar was just so powerful and that's what i'm kind of writing about i was writing uh starting this column before we came over here to do this like to me it was just it was not just because of elio like you know, I think people love him, obviously, like he's very popular and, and people love his personality and who doesn't like Elio. It is not just that they wanted to see um, a four time winner, which I think people really appreciate here, like those two things for sure. But I also think that people, when's the last time people got to cheer about anything? You right. know, a lot of these people that were here today, 135,000 people, I would say, I mean, I'm just guessing probably more than half of them probably haven't been to a sporting event at all since the the pandemic and this has not exactly been the best year that any of us have had so to be in a situation where it's sort of like everybody's all together and there's this powerful moment happening and everybody's just like letting it out like it just felt like cathartic i think that people were just giving this real raw emotion and just like belting out these cheers and he was embracing it and kept it going and they loved him and it, it just I think everybody just felt so good it was such such a powerful moment yeah you know as you say all this it, it makes me think back Jeff that you compared Elio's uh, the reaction to Elio a little bit to, to this Dale Jr. victories and when I think about the races I've covered that have gotten the loudest cheers I was in Daytona July of 2001 that might be ranked number one 2004 Daytona 500 that Dale Jr. won, that might be like 1A. Like mm-hmm. th- those are some of the loudest cheers I've ever heard. Uh, Bristol, when Dale Jr. won there in 2004, the night race for the first time, just unbelievable explosion of emotion and noise. And I think today uh, it felt a lot. I was at St. Petersburg in 2013, or 2012 when Elio won in St. Petersburg, Dan Weldon's hometown. Mm, I was at that race. You yeah. were at that race, too. Mm-hmm. The first race after Weldon was killed yep. um, at Las Vegas Motor Speedway. And there was something very cathartic that day about Elio winning that race, and he went and celebrated by patting the Dan Weldon Way sign. That's right. And he seemed like, you're, when he first won, it was sort of like, oh, I don't know if this works as the storyline. And then it was like, it's the perfect storyline. Like, he made it, he made everybody feel good about what had happened after an awful off-season and terrible four or five months of the aftermath of the Weldon death at Las Vegas. And you make a great point, Jeff. I mean, today felt that kind of catharsis that people have been trapped in their homes for 15 months and don't get to go to sporting events. And then to he- come out here and to hear for hear from an allegedly 40% capacity crowd, might have been more than 135,000 <laughs> people here today if you were looking around, um, but to hear that noise from a less than capacity Indianapolis Motor Speedway, it sounded like there were twice as many people here as a normal sellout crowd. And it, I think it really was. I mean, 
what fan base or crowd appreciates history more than the crowd that comes here? Mm-hmm. That we're, they've been holding this race since 1911. This track opened in 1909. This is 105th time they've run the Indy 500. And to have the first race post-pandemic be a guy tying the all-time win record for Indy 500 winners and putting his name next to Foyt and Unser and Mears. I mean, like, yeah, like, what could be better? <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, I, I say this as somebody who just loves motorsports, but thank goodness that he didn't do this last year. Right. I mean, that would have been, I mean, it still would have been a, a great feat, but it would have been sort of, I mean, this moment, you wouldn't have had anything like it. And you could have come back a year later and said, let's celebrate yeah. his moment. But, you know, you almost needed the fans to be part of this kind of moment. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah, it would have been so hollow for, to yeah. have this kind of history happen with no one in the stands. Yeah, to it would have been even, almost even now, sadder. All that being said, can I call you out a little bit? On oh, something? please. Okay, because you called me out earlier today okay. on, on something, which I, I totally deserved. But, um, <laughs> okay, so let's go back to 2013 when okay. Tony Kanaan won the Indy 500. Okay. Another, uh, I think uh, th- this was the seventh win today by a Brazilian driver. Um, Fittipaldi was another Brazilian winner, and obviously Kanaan uh, and now uh, Castro Neves has won four of them. And I think Brazilian drivers have been extremely popular with this place. And so in 2013, Kanaan won... Uh, this race for the first time after coming close so many times and the reaction from the crowd was maybe a little bit more than today in terms of like the the overwhelming enthusiasm hundreds of people standing out near victory circle for close to an hour after the race ended just to chant in that case tk's name or today it was elio 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 and back then i know you're going to ask how I'm, i'm calling you out that 2013 race ended under yellow Oh. And you wrote a column for USA Today in which you said, why no green, white, checkered? I did. And my retort was it ended exactly the way it should because it ended with three laps under yellow in which you know, 250,000 or 300,000 people could cheer the fact that Tony Kanaan won this race. Yeah. And Elio winning this race today reminded me of the way the, 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 the crowd embraced Kanaan's victory. And I feel like they embraced Elio the same way today because this is a crowd that appreciates appreciates history and heritage and you know in the case of Kanan they appreciated the fact that this was a guy who had tried I think 13 times come so close so many times and finally did it they wanted to bask and share in that moment and today it was Elio who'd done it before but obviously was making history this is a day that everybody at the speedway will be talking about decades from now I was there today Elio won his fourth absolutely and and you're right to call me out on that because I think that's a that was a really dumb take <laughs> um you know I, I wouldn't make that take today but at the time you know I I came into the um motorsports realm through the NASCAR way yeah and was pretty late to I mean I would was you know I'd watch Indy 500 once I got into NASCAR I didn't watch Indy 500 growing up didn't watch any racing growing up um, and so all I knew was NASCAR and I sort of started to let IndyCar stuff in. And of course, you know, like we talked about earlier in this podcast, I mean, there's two such different philosophies. And so coming in from the entertainment style philosophy, I'm like, why would you have this big race yeah. and not want to give the fans a proper finish? But now years later, I, I, that's part of the appeal. Yeah. Like, right. It, now, of course, I say this last year saying, couldn't they have red flagged it, you know, after Oliver Askew? Because there was a lot of caution laps and couldn't they have, you know, tried to restart it? And, and even people disagreed with that and brought up my column saying, you, this is just the same thing. So I guess I, I can't totally just say, oh, I've, I've changed so much because I said they should have red flagged it last year or whatever. But 
I, I do think now that, that, you know, I get it. Like it's 500 miles. Yeah. That's it. That's, that's the distance. And that, and that's what Pagano said afterward. He's like, man, if I only had one more lap, I could have won this race, but is what it is 500 miles. We know it's 500 miles. And just to go back to the red flag last year should have happened. I mean, that's a valid point. And to tie this all back to where we started, that's where I think IndyCar does get itself in trouble sometimes adhering too much to the purity of racing and we're not mm-hmm. going to affect the natural rhythm and flow. Okay. Sometimes it, it could use a little disruption. Like, <laughs> like to your point last year, so many choppy race, lots of yellows. I mean, red flag it and, and give the people a finish. And they did that in 2014. It was a different race director then. that was the Bo Barfield era. But mm-hmm. I think there are elements of that that could be brought back, but wasn't needed today. Yeah. Well, I mean, where, where does, um, where does Indy go from here? You know, this is, uh, you know, you're, you're really following this really closely for, for NBC, um, writing about all, all the races. Um, you know, I always, I, I'm very cautious because every time something big happens in the Indy 500, whether it's American winner or, you know, the 100th that really gave everybody a boost and things like that, like <clears throat> people try to sort of we, we all do extrapolate and say, now this will change. This could be big for IndyCar. But this race often seems to be like sort of like the Kentucky Derby, where it's just sort of people tune in, stand on its own, and that might be the only one they watch. So, you know, what what is this? Is this any sort of momentum for IndyCar? What do you see happening now? I, I think it's there'll be some momentum uh, because Elio, again, is a hugely popular winner, and I think it was an enthralling race. But in terms of, like, extending out through the season, I mean, your comparison to the Kentucky Derby is 100% correct. I mean, Indy 500 pays double points. So uh, this you can't use the cliche in NASCAR of, hey, they all pay the same number of points. Uh, not this one. Uh, they changed a few years ago. So this this does have more emphasis than when they go to Detroit in two weeks for a doubleheader, you know, down the road when they go to, you know, mid-Ohio or Road America. I mean, those are those will be important races. But now the focus completely shifts. IndyCar is weird in that, you know, what the rhythm's like in NASCAR. You start with Daytona. It's the biggest race of the year. And then, you know, after that, like, it's just you fall into the, the grind of, of the season. And, and it's like Daytona is its own separate entity. India is too, but it's different in that it is in not the middle of the season, but, you know, about a third of the way in. And now I think um, the focus just shifts back to, you know, what, what I was talking about with Dixon. Um, now I think it's, it shifts back to uh, who are the championship contenders? You know, can Scott Dixon and Joseph Newgarden, who have won, what, I don't know how many of the last, like, four or five championships that they've won, I guess, uh, what, going back to, like, um, power in 18 um you know those two guys are the ones to watch and to me it's interesting you know i'd like to get your perspective on this you were there on media day when jenna asked newgarden about you know what is it about the indy 500 where champions don't seem to win as much mm-hmm. and i feel like we saw it again today a little bit with with dixon and newgarden and with castro nevis castro nevis has never won a championship hmm. came close once or twice but he's a four-time indy 500 winner Scott Dixon has one Indy 500 victory, but yet uh, has had you know six championships and has led this race more than anybody in history and is closing in on the all-time laps led record. And I just think it's fascinating. There's this weird dichotomy there where the, the guys who win this race aren't really champions of the series very often. Newgarden's never won the race either. He's a two-time champion. Again, Dixon's a six-time champion. I just think it's... I, I guess, I don't know, maybe there's some parallels there with Daytona, too. I mean, Hamlin. 
I mean, well, three-time Daytona winner and has won a championship. Last week, I scoffed at Jordan for because he he was basically like saying, you know, sort of I don't know, I was taking a shot at Dixon, but saying, you know, Dixon's career won't be viewed as that great because or as great as it could be as as like legend status because even though he's won six titles, he's only won the Indy 500 once, like you just said, and um, but I, I I do think that this race is so different than everything else that they do. Right. Um, it's just, it's not as random as Daytona, but it's just such a, it's a whole different dynamic. So I can't really, you know, you can be a great, it's not even, it's not even a traditional oval. It's not right. even like you say, oh, I'm a great oval racer. It's not like Texas, it's not like Gateway or, or whatever, you know, it's just so different. So um, I don't know. I, I just think there's so many things that can happen in this race and it's one race. And, and like today, Dixon almost salvaged you know a mistake that well i guess it wasn't really even a mistake i mean i don't know what you could have done differently could it was just really. a fluke thing and yeah. i mean could the team call him earlier pit road was blocked probably so yeah. yeah no the only thing they really could have done was just change the strategy from the outset yeah. and do run a race that scott dixon isn't really built to run and that's sort of my point is that the consistency that wins championships for guys like Newgarden and Scott Dixon, where Newgarden talked about it on media day, like to have that, that total package. Yeah. Um, he made a great point with Sato uh, who, you know, won this race last year. Takuma Sato is a two time Indy 500 winner. And his whole motto is, you know, um, something no like attack, no chance, no attack, yeah. no chance. And Newgarden made the point that that is what Indy 500 mantra is about. It's about guys who just, you know, it, you know, it just rewards, being hell bent on winning mm-hmm. and and but it over the course of a season it doesn't really apply yeah. yeah and that's why guys like dixon and newgarden excel so i i agree with you like when i heard jordan say that i blanched a little bit but now that i've kind of reflected on a little bit i think there is something there and this is not to diminish dixon's ability or reputation or career at all he is one of the all-time indycar greats but you know will his resume look a little bit different if he gets the second indy 500 win i think that it would. I think it would help him um, if he were to get that. And, you know, just to tie it back to what you asked about momentum, like, I don't know if you can take much from it in mm-hmm. terms of, like, momentum for what it means for IndyCar because aside from Scott Dixon losing the points lead because he finished uh, 17th today and his teammate Polo finished second and picked up essentially two races of second-place points, Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it changes the championship a little bit from that perspective. But I don't think it changes – how it'll unfold over the coming weeks. Now I think we go back to Ken Dixon and Newgarden kind of fend off this wave of kids. Well, Nate, this has been uh, really enjoyable having you on here. Of course, I listened to your podcast, the NASCAR and NBC podcast. And, uh, man, you guys, you've, you know, you had a little bit of a hiatus there uh, during the pandemic. You've brought it back in full force recently. You're always having these great um analysts these nbc analysts on there and i go back and listen after some of these races and i'm like man i didn't think about it that way whether it's dj or kyle petty or latart whoever I'm just like oh that's oh that's really burton. interesting perspective burton yeah, yeah they're great. all great yeah they're all so great. um obviously i hope people are listening to that they probably more people are listening to that than listening to this but um. no it's probably about even i'm, <laughs> I'm uh, blessed to have all those guys and i'll just say that uh i, I listen to you and jordan uh, on my run every monday and often before I tape that podcast. So you guys uh, put a lot of things in my head that help our podcast. So I am appreciative and always a loyal listener. And I, I'm very honored to be on here, as always. Well, I, I appreciate that. And uh, I always look forward to the text uh, that I usually hope sides <laughs> with me instead of Jordan if there's any sort of 
thing, and then I can hold that over Jordan's head for the next week or something. So. Sorry, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, speaking of Jordan, um, we are going to wrap things up here in Indy and throw it over in the future to Jordan and David Smith, who are going to talk about everything that happened at the Coca-Cola 600. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Nate. Appreciate that. And over here at Charlotte Motor Speedway, Jordan Bianchi here. I am joined by Nate's cohorts, David Smith and Dustin Long. We were planning on having David, and then we decided, why not? We're going to have an NBC trifecta. We had to invite Dustin Long. Welcome, gentlemen. I appreciate it. What do we think? We had a record-breaking day in Indianapolis. We had a record-breaking day here at Charlotte Motor Speedway. Rick Hendrick is now the most successful car owner in NASCAR history based off of wins, 269. Let's put this in perspective. Gentlemen? Well, you said it's a history-making day. Um, you know, for Hendrick Motorsports, it's on the level of what uh, what Elio Castro Nevis did today at Indianapolis with winning for the, uh, the fourth uh, Indianapolis 500 and only becoming the fourth person to do that. You know, for Hendrick, you know, this is something that Rick has talked to his drivers about. They've been very open about about how Rick has been very involved and in, in really wanting to get this record. You know, it, uh, it it's kind of a symmetry in the sense of it's like when Rick started, uh, you know, at one point it looked like Richard Petty was going to be his driver. So to that was go, why it was called All Star Racing. That was yes, part of that it, and Kenny it, Rogers. Yes, so it didn't happen that way. No, it did not. <laughs> it almost closed, and we'll see. And yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, David. Your perspective on this? I mean, we are. I think we all agree Hendrick was the mo- the best car owner of all time. If you're going to rank him, I mean, does this solidify it for you? Does it change anything? Uh, I always thought that, just in re- in regards to stock car racing, I, I'm sure that Roger Penske can can speak up and, and maybe maybe Ferrari over here. Well, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll I think it's an argument for yeah. that. Um, but certainly, I think he holds the title now, and in the manner in which he did it, uh, with a driver in Kyle Larson who is proving to be the driver that analytics have always said that he is, and really probably a low-key story at this point, a crew chief in Cliff Daniels, whose efflorescence is occurring before our eyes. He's like, um, he is becoming the next Chad Knauss. I mean, that was kind of how he was touted as being when he took over for Kevin Mandering a few years ago as kind of the next generation of Chad Knauss, and that seems to be the case. I think that was the hope. I don't, I don't know if anybody <laughs> knew that because he was a mid-season replacement. Sure. At, at one point, it was thought that Kevin Mandering was better than this man at being a crew chief. And right now, that's, that's very tough to see. And when we can talk about tonight, we can point to the dominance of Larson's team. It came into this race ranked first in 550 speed. Mm-hmm. Larson, as a driver, ranked first in 550 production. But the win was a burden on Daniels as well. The green flag pit stops, both crew chief and pit crew, the timing, the stop itself, has been a tremendous improvement over last year with Jimmy Johnson. They retained running position inside the top five 22% of the time last year with Johnson behind the wheel. This year, it is close to 90%. That's a tremendous increase in that clip. So what we saw tonight was an all-around woodshed whipping. <laughs> Let me ask you this, Does When we look at the finishing order tonight, Kyle Larson wins, Chase Elliott second, Kyle Busch, the party crashers in third, which I actually kind of was interested to see if he was going to break up this the yeah. Hendrick. If he would have won tonight, it would have been kind of, uh, I don't know, appropriate in some respects. Former <laughs> Hendrick driver, he left there in bad terms, crashed the party, would have been interesting. William Byron finishes fourth, Alex Bowman fifth. Um, 
Kyle Larson led 328 laps tonight. It, it, it felt like it was his race to lose. If he wasn't going to win, it was either going to be Byron or Elliott. Um, how dominant is Hendrick Motorsports right now? And their dominance, though, is it confined to just a certain number of tracks? Because I know this is something you guys have talked about post-race. We've kind of talked about this individually. Their last three wins, they've got now three wins in a row, have come on, on non-playoff tracks. That said, they do have two wins this year at Las Vegas, at Richmond, that do come on playoff tracks. How do we look at this, Dustin? Yeah, that's the thing I'm trying to figure out because, uh, you know, I talked to some people in the garage and, and one comment was, well, I mean, they've got a, a tremendous amount of speed and speed carries over from track to track, even though it's, it's different types of tracks. So I think I think there is a little I think there is some concern to some degree uh, in the garage. I don't think it is of the go back in the, the meetings this week and a lot of yelling and screaming and panicking um, because these are. Uh, non-playoff tracks. I think teams are aware, and I, I think I think they're I think teams are maybe looking more within themselves and trying to figure out what they need to do. But I think they're also sticking with the plan. I think it's something David's talked about uh, a lot is how teams are kind of focused on particular tracks. And look, the way this playoff format is, and David's talked about uh, talked about it a lot is. Um, there's a particular reward for going after certain types of tracks. And, uh, you know, David, you talked about what James Small and, and Martin Truex Jr. have done and what James said, uh, was it earlier this year after the uh, the Phoenix win and how they uh, changed their attack a little bit after last year? Yeah, and, and firstly, let's realize what is being crowned at the end of a year. It is a certain competition designed by NASCAR. It is not an all-around traditional championship and even going back two years ago when it was announced that Phoenix Raceway was going to host the NASCAR season finale with a 750 rules package Travis Geisler and team Penske made the hard pivot to say well we're a 750 team now we, we like to win at 550 tracks but we really don't care because we know where the bread is buttered and this offseason, we saw something similar. James Small spoke to this after Martin Truex's win at Phoenix. They went to Phoenix last fall. They sucked. His words, not mine. <laughs> and he worked the, the first Monday in November after they got back from Arizona. He worked with engineer Jeff Curtis on a Phoenix setup. Sure. James Small said he worked on it all offseason. Took him a competition caution and a stage break or two to dial it in for Truex. Truex went from being the 14th or 16th fastest car in the first stage to the fastest car of the final stage. And that is the level of speed, the level of heightened focus on the 750 tracks that decide this championship that is required. So when you see Hendrick finishing one, two, three, four at Dover, a track that does not have playoff representation, Joe Gibbs Racing and Team Penske can say, okay, Go take your picture. Go roll out all the cars in front of Hendrick. Bring out, bring out the you know all of your dealers. Oh, that's great, but we'll take the championship come November. So there, there is as long as you get the chance, as long as that works. I mean, again, look, you know, I think one. Of the, I'll say this. I think there, there is a value in what Hendrick has done. Is that this is a very, very long season. Rick is about winning. Rick is about you know taking a look at how people are treated, the morale. 
Um, and, and when you win, it, 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 it makes the work a little bit easier. It makes the request to do certain things a little bit easier. And, uh, you know, that there's a, look, there's a, they're highly motivated over there. I think if they're struggling, they're still going to give the same effort. I don't know if it's that much different, but I think it just makes everything a little bit better. Uh, does it open things up for potential sponsorship? Because now you're starting to get a little bit more attention that way. Does that help change things and, and more resources? So I think in an indirect way, this is this is this is you know this is this is the Rick Hendrick playbook. I want to win every race, and I want to be able to maximize it. If you look at it from you know competition side, yeah. If 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 I'm a Joe Gibbs or Team Pen, uh, Team Penske, and if I'm going to focus on a particular type of track, as long as I win the championship, that was the right plan. That was yeah. the right play. Yeah, and you're right. But that isn't the contest that's being rewarded in November. And I would almost no. argue it's possible they're too motivated because when I asked Cliff Daniels, are you prioritizing any yeah. racetracks? He said no, because he's never visited any of these tracks with Kyle Larson before. Yep. It's an answer that makes sense. He needs to, to set a baseline with Larson first and foremost. He's still learning Larson. Yeah, but but if you're doing that, it takes time away from this heightened level of research for these playoff tracks that Joe Gibbs Racing and Team Penske already have a foundation built. Uh, but let me ask you, uh, but I'd argue this is with, with uh, Hendrick with being such a large organization, I would say that couldn't, as opposed to some other ones maybe potentially, that, that uh, Cliff could make that could, could put that focus on Kyle because there's other people that can can be doing the, the big big picture long range stuff and this would still allow Cliff to learn his driver more. I mean he you know he talked about how uh, you know how how he learned you know how Kyle prepares for dirt races. He's had to learn that and how how meticulous that he's in, that Kyle is and so he's trying to provide all that information to Kyle. And so I think I think he could focus on that and let other people worry about the big picture, give a direction type of thing. That's Dustin Long from NBC Sports. Also joining us, David David Smith from NBC Sports and Motorsports Analytics. Which, again, if you are into NASCAR and you wanted the deeper dive, that's the best way to describe it about NASCAR and what really is the truth in numbers. It is the website for the thinking fan. That's a really great slogan. You've worked on that one. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of Hendrick Motorsports, and, and I, I over lately, I've kind of gotten tired of the. Oh, these are the champ. This is the championship favorite, and I fall into this trap. I think we all do. I, I wrote this after Darlington when Martin Truex Jr. won. You know, I was like, oh, this guy's gonna be. I feel like after last year with Denny Hamlin and Kevin Harvick, I just don't know because I don't think anybody saw Chase Elliott doing what he did last year. He won three of the last five playoff races. Yes, we know he's really good at the Roval. We know he's had success at Martinsville, but he still went there and did it. And then he went to Phoenix, and I think it was fair to say he was probably the fourth out of four when you looked at the contenders. It seemed to me the consensus was Keselowski, Logano, 1A, 1B, however you want to rank them. Which and goes to what David was talking about, that the team Penske yeah, focus they, on those tracks. And that was we heard last year, the 750, you know, Penske's so good in this, they've got the focus. And, and then Hamlin was right in that mix. So to me, it just seems too early to dis, you know to decide or to label a guy as the favorite. I think Truex... I think Hamlin, I think Larson have kind of separated themselves at times this year. It seems like other times William Byron and Chase Elliott are right there as well. I, I want to ask you guys about Kyle Larson, though, and the season that he potentially could have. I did some number crunching a little bit, and I looked at it. He is led more laps this year by almost double than Kevin Harvick. His average finish is four spots high, uh, higher than Kevin Harvick. But if you compare them, 
it's I think I think Kyle Larson is having as good of season as Kevin Harvick was last year, and I would say that he's on pace to probably eclipse Kevin Harvick if you look at it. Can we? Do you think we're going to see a, a, a Kevin Harvick type season from Kyle Larson, which is an eight nine win season, maybe a ten? Well, look, I think if uh, if things had gone well at the beginning of the season or gone the right way, I'd say yes. I mean, look, at, at, at the Daytona Road Course, second race of the year. He was he, fourth, he, he, well, well, no, he passed Bush for second yep. and, 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 and wheel hops and, and puts it into the barrier. Uh, but remember, at that point, he was ahead of Christopher Bell. They were on the same pit strategy. Mm-hmm. They had the fresher tires. Bell ended up was fourth at the time and went on to catch Joey Logano. So you know Larson thinks, hey, I could I could have caught I could have caught uh, Logano and won that race. So okay, he wins he wins the Daytona Road Course. Uh, you know he finished fourth at Miami. Byron was very strong that day. It, you know if something's a little bit better at at that track for Kyle, could Kyle have won that because we know how good he is there? Then you look at Atlanta and what happened with leading all those laps and and giving it away at the end of there so right there there's there's three wins let's not let's talk about bristol too bristol he's got the engine change and you know practice has a start in the back and within 40 laps he's running in the top 10 easily the fastest car on the racetrack and then you know gets caught up in a wreck so yeah but still you look at it though it looks like the number of wins are i mean i just i don't see how he's not going to end up if he keeps on this pace it's going to end up with seven eight wins uh a rebuttal okay (laughs) please tell us numbers guy kyle larson (laughs) has to reckon with something kevin harvick did not and that is competition within his own organization sure harvick had a sizable advantage of of having at his disposal a a nascar juggernaut with a formula one team on its campus and was it, it, it one of four drivers who could purely take advantage of that. <laughs> um, that is not the case with Hendrick. William Byron has come to prominence, uh, prominence recently. I wrote for Motorsports Analytics. He has become a $5 million a year driver. Another one is Chase Elliott, who is the reigning champion. And Alex Bowman is a two-time race winner mm-hmm. this season. So there's a little more going on at Hendrick the, the competition is his under his under his own roof, for the most part. Sure. And once we get out of this summer stretch, which is going to be really weird to see how Larson performs on road courses mixed in with two mile tracks, but once we're past that, and well, we two get mile into tracks, I'll say, we, we, two mile tracks at Michigan, by the way, he's really good at. So, yeah, uh, I'm pretty confident he's going to do okay there. And the road course thing is Dustin's point; he does seem to have that figured out. It's interesting to me, and Hendrick right now, because their cars are so good, I would expect them to continue. Yes, there's inter-team competition, but we've seen Hendrick before have years where they've had widespread guys, you know, multiple guys have just, you know, outworldly years where they're winning a bunch of races. I don't see why you couldn't have it this year. Um, question I have for you guys about William Byron, and maybe I'm being way too harsh. This is the moment of the show where I always make some kind of hot take for some reason. I am very impressed with what he's done. He's taken that next step. He is certainly the talent, and he is showing an incredible run of consistency. Do we need to see him close out races just a little bit better? It seems like he runs well, but just at the end of races, just maybe a little bit off. Sure, but you're putting a lot of weight on a 23-year-old driver working with a new crew chief. I'm nitpicking, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, in that sense, they're they're still largely filling each other out. I think the, the benefit in having... Yeah, but let, me, let me argue for one point. I'm uh, Cliff and Kyle are still are figuring each other out, and they and they've done it too. So, sure. and I know every combination is different, but I'm just going to play devil's advocate and interrupt and just be. <laughs> I'm going I'm to throw in a mini hot take. This is what this is all about. Larson has a bit more experience sure. in the Cup Series yep. with late race situations. 
this is all new for William Byron in 2021. He is seeing cars on a regular basis that he didn't see very often last season. So the the alchemy required to get by the Gibbs cars, the other Hendrick cars, the Penske cars on 750 tracks is a little bit different than last year, last two years when his competition was what? Eric Almarola, Austin Dillon. It's a different brand. So to understand what he needs to do to beat those guys that have far more experience than he does is a tough step. So yeah, you might be a little bit too harsh. I think it's there, I think it's, it'll yeah. come, but, it, but the most important part is someone that young is heading on this kind of trajectory, you do have to feel good about it. And, and Rick Hendrick suggested as much this evening in his, in his post-race press conference that he's, he's pretty astounded by uh, Byron's progress over these last few years when some people wrote him off unfairly. Which is really sick. And yeah. again, I want to point out, he's second in points, and I think yeah. he's a stud, and yeah. I think he's, he's a future champion. I think he's got that kind of potential. So uh, you, know, you know, one thing... Just, to me, it's interesting. One thing I like tonight is is he had some good battles with Kyle Busch. Yes. And and you, you David, you talked about... He had a little know, edge to him tonight, it looked like. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, um, and as David was talking about, just the... Racing with a different group and and learning. I mean, he, he's racing a two-time champion, and okay, maybe his cars got the advantage over Kyle Busch. Kyle Busch was certainly giving him a challenge, so he's he's taking he's taking punches from Kyle Busch. Uh, you know, if it's a boxing match, not literally people, um, <laughs> but he he's he's taking some of, he's taking he's taking some of Kyle Busch's best shots, and he's he's learning how to counter that. He's countering them. Um, he's fighting through it. He's learning what what you know how Kyle's using the, the lap traffic as picks or how that kind of plays in and some of the moves that Kyle had to do. You know, Kyle had maybe to do a little bit more because for as good as his car was, it wasn't as good as the Hendrick cars. So Kyle had to to kind of step out a little bit and be more aggressive. So he's he's getting a little bit more of that. I thought I really liked how he responded to that tonight. And again, I think that's part of the process. It's what we hear from drivers, you know, when you run the middle of the pack and then you start to run up in the top 10 and the top five, it's a different group of people. They race differently. Uh, sometimes there's a give and take. Sometimes it's just, you know, you know pound, pound, pound. And, and I think this is, this is part of the, the education of, of William Byron. And I think tonight was a, a, a good, good progress report for him in that sense. I want to put a bow on the Hendrick discussion. Then we're going to move on to the race kind of overall uh, Hendrick Motorsports record-breaking win tonight, 269th. Let's talk about quickly about our favorite Hendrick moment. I just feel like it's appropriate. To me, the one that jumps out to me, and I haven't been covering the sport nearly as long as you have, Dustin, is 2016 when Jimmy Johnson won that championship because it was kind of unexpected, which is unusual yeah. for that team because they were the world beaters. They were the, the six, you know five straight championships, and they weren't expected to lose. But that year, going in that semi, that that championship race, they were not the. They weren't even. They were kind of. They were four out of four, but they weren't even in the ballpark four. And things broke their way, and they took advantage of it. But they did it. To me, that just always stood out, and it ended up being kind of the the defining moment of the, the Chad uh, Chad Connors, Jimmy Johnson era. And that was really kind of their last great moment. Yeah, you know, I, I guess I would go back to, you know, a moment that stands out is certainly how the organization responded after the plane crash in 2004, and Rick's talked about that, and, and winning the following week at Atlanta, and just what they did that season. I, I, certainly it didn't end up in, in the championship, and they, mm -hmm. they fell a little bit short to, to Kurt Busch, but I mean, 
you know, what was it, eight-point difference points, yeah. for, for Jimmy Johnson. And Jeff Gordon was right there in third. So uh, it was nearly a championship. I mean, you know, it would have, it would have been one more. To, it would have gotten Jimmy started on the – you know, the, the championship run and could have been ultimately, I guess, it would have led to an eighth championship. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. um, so I think, I think, you know, you look at something like that, 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 that kind of comes to mind. Um, you know, I just think, I think also back in those early days with Chad and Jimmy, you could do all this testing and they just did a ridiculous amount of testing and it gave him the, the track time, the track experience, and, and they were able to kind of build and, and score some wins early on and, and really kind of build that team up and, and really kind of make it uh, the, the building blocks of a juggernaut. Uh, less informative than that, I'm actually going to say uh, it was the signings of Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Casey Kane and the power flex that those two moves represented because – there are. I would even throw Mark Martin in that mix too, because it just. I mean, like he learned Mark Martin out of retirement. A little bit. Was, well, Mark wasn't retired. Yeah, he wasn't retired. Retired. He was part time. I forget. He Mark had five Martin. consecutive farewell tours. <laughs> yeah, I can't keep track. But I mean, it was just like it was like boo. It was like major signing after major signing. And you're right, though. And after, and it was really it was the Casey Kane one that I think hit the most. Just thinking, my goodness, how is anybody going to ever compete with Hendrick Motorsports? Yeah. Turns out it's actually okay to compete with Hendrick Motorsports. It, it, it can be done fairly easily if you put in the, the time and the money. But it it was those those reminders that, oh, yeah, we can go and get Dale Earnhardt. You thought we were big with <laughs> Jeff Gordon. We just found, like, another Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson. You think we're big now. Just wait until what happens when Dale Jr. arrives. And then Casey Kane at that time, um, he was – a little bit removed from the success at, Henry, uh, at Everham Motorsports. Yeah. It was the Petty. The, the, Petty. The, the and, rem and remember, he yeah. signed Kane a year say. ahead of time. Because yeah. I, I, I think I, I remember. him out to Red Bull, which is crazy. Because yeah. that was the impression at the time. You're like, well, wait a second. They're signing him a year in advance, and they're going to just give him to a different team? That was the shocking and, part about it. Yes, yeah. yeah. I, and I think it was, it was, it was a, a press conference or teleconference. Is like, I really questioned Rick on that pretty hard. And it's like, you know, what does this say about the sport? Or you, know, you guys can just run over everybody like that. That. And then, like, it was uh, a few months later, I think Rick saw me and kind of poked a little fun at me about <laughs> that. And, was, and uh, but yeah, it's, I mean, you know, that was, you know, certainly you had Roush had that period where they were really strong and with their five cars. And then Hendrick just kind of came in and kind of took over. And Jimmy was winning championships. And they were built, you know, they were like a maybe a two, two and a half car team and really kind of building and building. And um, and yes, those signings. It was you know, Junior was big. Casey Kane was just like eye popping because it was he. It was going to be a, another year plus before he, he was could, the next one. Yeah. Yes, he was supposed to be yeah. like the next core. He was going to fall on that Jimmy Jeff you know yeah. train and win you know win the next generation of championships. And then it, it didn't work out, unfortunately. Uh, we put a bow on the Hendrick talk, and I, we, we mentioned how dominant they are. Uh, Kyle Larson, like I said, 328 laps tonight. It wasn't much of a race unless you're a, a fan of Hendrick Motorsports. The Coca-Cola 600 has kind of become this. It's not that exciting of a race. Uh, Jeff and I talked about it uh, on The Athletic this week. Uh, if you talk about Charlotte Motor Speedway, you don't talk about the 600 anymore. This is a crown jewel race, but people talk about the Roval, the playoff race, more than the 600 now, I think. So is your hot take that you're going to call the Roval a crown jewel now? No, I'm not going to ignore my hot takes. 
what, what do we do with this race? I mean, it, it, like 600 miles, I, I'm, on, I'm on the bandwidth. You don't need 600 miles. It could be 600 kilometers. You keep the 600 name. That's the gimmick, Jordan. This is Bruton no, Smith is not known for subtlety. <laughs> yeah, well, that, we, that is true. I, I just, th- this is, this is two if you, if you, if you, if this If this becomes the Coca-Cola 400, what does it gain? What, what's the difference like, between 600 and 400 other than uh, you or somebody else wants to get out of the track a little bit early? I'm not, I'm not, don't, please don't do okay. the Eddie Gossage thing on me. Um, <laughs> no, I just, I, to me, less race, less monotonous racing, you condense it down, you might be able to see some more action. I just don't know how this product best serves NASCAR tonight. I was talking to some people in the garage, and it's like, this isn't, this isn't, I mean. The Indianapolis was, 500 was what? Only had a few couple cautions not, and was I the fastest. And so let's but, shorten the Indianapolis 500 but, down. I, but you're talking cautions, though. I'm not talking okay. cautions. I'm okay. talking tonight. Indy 500 today was a great race. We saw passing. We saw strategy. It was a great race because what? Because of the end of the race and the, and the motion? I, I thought it was throughout. I mean, you had the Dixon stuff early. You just I thought you had the natural ebb and flow of a race. This, to me, it's pretty mundane. You you, you get what you get. And it's, we seem to see this. We saw Martin Truex Jr. do this before. We've seen Kyle Busch do this before. Somebody hits on something and they run away. I, to me, this isn't good. Is it the dominance that is hitting a wall? I think that's fair. Okay. So break up the dominance, have multiple leaders. It's still a 600-mile race. It becomes more compelling for you, I take it? I just want to see I want to see drama. I want to see excitement. I want to see more passing. I want to see more of a I, – I, I, tonight I was watching this race like, okay, Kyle Larson's going to win. If he doesn't, it's going to be his teammates. Mm-hmm. A couple years ago, it was the same thing. Martin Truex Jr. is going to win this race. or uh, And something uh, – Black Hole is going to have to open up and swallow him for him not to win this race. And we did see that with Kyle Busch the year that Austin Dillon won. You know, Kyle ran out of fuel. Or to, I, you know, it was just, a couple of years ago with the, the different package at the short tracks. We saw, what, yeah. Keselowski leave 450. Yeah. Some race elapsed and Truex do it. So are we gonna yeah, short? Is it is it short in every race that 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 uh, that Jordan thinks is too long because somebody <laughs> down? I mean, look, it's you, you're gonna run 36 races a season. You're gonna have some races that are dominant. Sure. I understand your concern from your point. So hey, there's been some dominance lately. Um, you know, was, how, this, how much how much you want to gimmick it up? This then? used to be a test Amanda machine. Like to run 600 miles here, it was a physical dawn. I mean, Rick Mass it, had an interesting tweet tonight. I thought which was you know this race used to be run in the daylight, and when and when it was this race was over, people were in the garage, drivers in the garage, and they were dog tired. You don't see that anymore. You don't see equipment failures. You just don't see that kind of thing. So the novelty of the 600 miles was this unique thing and a test driver and man. Or driver and machine. What what is the novel? Driver and machine have caught up to that test. Yeah. So yeah, in Rick Mass era, drivers were smoking cigarettes before yeah, they hopped in the that. car and ran. So and if it's no longer miles. a test anymore, then why are we doing it? Because everyone's going to pass the test. Well, okay, let's let's make it a seven hundred or eight hundred oh, mile. <laughs> That's going to test man. That's right. If you want to ma- test a man or machine, let's go with Coca Cola eight hundred. I think what we need is good racing. We should be still watching racing right now. What I think would be interesting though is I noticed tonight too, and Dustin, you, you're really attuned to this. Is there isn't a in David you are too, because you wrote about this on uh, your race preview uh, on. NBC sports there is not a lot of tire fall off no and, and that's, that's that's frustrating because that too many times you see pit stops with with two stops or sometimes you know no tires you don't want to see that you want to see tire degradation does tire fall off make the race for you because we saw all the tire fall off at Atlanta and what happened Kyle Larson walked sure. the dog he didn't win the race but it was 
I would argue on par with what we saw tonight. Sure, and I'm, I'm, we can talk about Atlanta. That's a whole different story. Basically, so, I'm just basically going to okay, blow ball so, with my half race I mean, Chase Elliott voiced this today. You know, a, a lack of passing. Fans love to see cars on TV screens, and I understand that. But if a car is out front in the lead, the chances are it is incredibly fast. And if you are a car trailing, it's going to be hard to pass that faster car. Imagine that. Yeah. <laughs> that, you, you are asking the laws of physics to bend to your will <laughs> by, by re- demanding more passes over the course of a race where cars naturally spread out. Um, some of that has to do with the rules package, but if you got rid of it, we're probably going to see a lot of the same characteristics. Sure. So it's, no, listen, this isn't a race that's going to appeal to everyone. Uh, I'm sure it's not going to score well in Jeffrey's poll on Twitter. Um, but it, it, it is the race, and it's a challenging race for teams because of the minimal tire wear. Kyle Larson said he hoped that there was not a caution. That would have been the great equalizer because, not to say that he would have been a sitting duck, but on traditional tracks, the second place car is typically who passes the first place car. Here, with no tire wear, it could have been the 13th place car frogging first place. We saw that last year with Alex Bowman and two stage wins. That could have happened. So we could have seen that. Larson's lead was kept honest. It just didn't come to fruition. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I think we're going to disagree. You guys like the 600 miles. That's fine. I'm apparently in the minority. Uh, we will close this out. Uh, let me touch on this first. Dustin, David, anything you guys want to talk on, talk, touch on? Anything we missed? You know, I, I'll tell you, I, I was talking to David uh, during the race, and I, I thought one thing that was interesting was, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of focus on the last – position or two in the points to get in the playoff race and tonight was it the the guys that were outside matt de benedetto um he's 55 back now. yeah he, he did not have the best tonight they had the the pit strategy that just an egregious <laughs> go ahead rant just <laughs> I, I, I teed him up oh he, he mentioned it earlier to me today too i i yeah. feel i feel about penske's crew chiefs the way jordan bianchi feels about ferrari uh i i must be the crazy one uh because okay. greg Irwin ran to Benedetto a lap down during the first stage. He did get the lap back eventually, but at that at that point, what are you doing? And and Dustin's right. That impacted because there's a fourth stage. There's more opportunity for points. The teams on the playoff cutoff that went out and got those points. Reddick and Busher tenfold yeah. over yeah. The, the likes of Ganassi, who finished last and second to last, yeah. and and Matt De Benedetto, who had a, just a truly dreadful day. So did Kurt Busch, too, by the way. He just, he's now yeah. 83 points back, and I'm not ready to say he's in a must-win position. but This is the worst race to have a worst race. Yeah, and it you is. talked about That's that. That's the yeah. thing, too. The, the four, rewarding four stage points drives me crazy, by the way, because theoretically this is the most important regular season race there is. It's the longest. It's, of course, it's the best. As you've mentioned. <laughs> so, I mean, like I said, I, I, tonight was a big night in that sense because the, the gap, as you know, it widened yeah. because, because uh, you know, De Benedetto, the pit call, put him back. Bush Bush has his issues, finishes last. You had uh, Stenhouse. Uh, he ended up coming up to 12th, um, but really didn't 
collect on a whole lot of stage points. I think I don't even think he did. He score any points in the first stage? I don't think he did after starting second. I was I hanging think out he, with Pitbull and Pit Road, right. so I couldn't tell you. Wow, let's name drop right now. <laughs> Jeez, I was hanging out with David Smith, so I think uh, it's a know. push. It's a push. Uh, <laughs> but but so you had Stenhouse wasn't able to score the the points. I mean, I think was it he ends up with twenty seven points, so he scores fewer points than Busher and Reddick, so he falls further behind. Chastain has his problems. Newman hits the wall. So you know the guys that were the first five guys. Guys that were outside a playoff spot tonight, for the most part, weren't really able to. I mean, they all four of the five had bad nights. Yeah. Uh, Stenhouse wasn't able to take advantage of, of the second starting position and get as many points as, as you, you would have hoped in that situation. So it really kind of and, and Reddick took advantage of things, and Busher had uh, they got some points and, and got up there, and so uh, it widened the gap, and, and it, it it makes you wonder that it's probably going to have to be a win for those guys or. You're gonna, have, gonna have to collapse. You're gonna have to have you know Busher or um, Reddick really kind of have two bad races in, in a short period, and I mean finish last and not get any stage points and leave leave the leave the track with one point like Kurt Busch and Chastain did. Performance on road courses this summer is is going to be a big separator. I agree, and I and I want to mention that really quick is as we look at the guys outside of the playoffs right now is there anybody you can see that's going to jump up and get a win because there's one name that pops out at me and it's a little bit outside it's chase briscoe because he is good on the road courses he's shown that kurt kurt, is, is, kurt could there you go he, he's, he has been known to pop up and get that win he had a fourth place finish at daytona road course this year so maybe kurt gets that so david do you i was, gonna, I was gonna say a strategy centric team and, and kurt's is that this year with with matt mccall's improvement um uh Ross Chastain with uh, crew chief Phil we'll Surgeon um, with just stellar green flag pit He was fast at Coda. Stops. He was really fast at Coda. They've, they've Next played. race, there's a downpour. He's good to go. <laughs> well, <laughs> the way Mother Nature hates NASCAR, that might be the case. <laughs> and, 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 and in that sense, you know, we might be racing against the rain again. Strategy is going to play a key role in potentially who gets into the playoffs. Yeah. So some of these cutoff spots, if, if you are – Chip Ganassi racing, and you're leaving Charlotte tonight with just the worst imaginable yeah, race. And on top of the Dixon, what happened to Scott Dixon in the Indy 500 today? You're, you're, you're a road course team now. Yeah. That, yeah. that better be your focus. That's be, a good point. Because is that the lowest hanging fruit to the playoffs? Right it's got to be because I don't think they Well, Daytona. Regular season finale at Daytona. Kurt sure. Busch, Chast- I'd put Chastain in there. I mean, you know, look, it's uh, – um, there will be, you know, that's why it's there. It's a level of desperation. It gives, it gives you that last opportunity when you had a bad season. So, you know, look, if, 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 if Kurt Busch's team and Chastain's team continue to have struggles, they still have Daytona. So, look, I, I, you know, I like what you say, David, about the, the strategy. Look, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm the Ganassi cars, I'm, I, I'm going out in the left field, and I'm, I'm throwing some Hail Marys because if nothing else, if it works, great. If it doesn't, I still got Daytona. And you know what? I, I, if I'm that organization, I was like, I like my chances with Kurt Busch, maybe even so with the Brass Chastain. Why not? Let's, let's, we're just going to roll the dice and let it roll because we're, it's going to be tough to get in on points at this, at this point this far back. We've got to pull. We've got to. We've got to score a win somewhere. And 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 quite frankly, you know, there may only be two or three people that get in on on points, and that's just going to raise the level, raise uh, the the gap or the cutoff point. So you're going to have to get in on on a win. So go for it. It's yeah. it, 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 it. There's, you know, there, there's no time to be meek. Just just hail mary after hail mary, and if one lands, 
congratulations to you. You're in the playoffs, and you know, see what happens the first round. Exactly. Now, my favorite portion of the show. I'm not sure how we're going to do this because we're going to do three guesses, and I'm just going to let. I think I'm going to let Jeff pick whatever which guess he wants as his, and then we'll just we'll sort out the details later. Or the average between what David and I pick. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That's a good idea too. Uh, good race ball. My always favorite time of the segment. Uh, you guys are the guests, so I will let you guys pick first. Dustin, you are the senior writer at NBC okay. Sports, so please go ahead. Uh, yeah, because of the dominance, you know, I think. With, with Larson leading so many laps, I'm going to guess 58%. Wow, that's higher than I thought it would be. Okay. I, I mean, I think the Hendrick win probably will resonate with some people. Well, that's what I was thinking, of, you know, winning that. But yeah. uh, I, don't, I don't foresee it over 60. Okay. Maybe I'll All be right. wrong. I don't think Jeff's going to pick your number. <laughs> <laughs> David Smith, Motorsports Analytics and NBC Sports. Please, the floor is yours. I don't have much faith in NASCAR fans liking this race. What is the lowest percentage? I don't keep the numbers. I should. I was wanting to know that, too. And I also have to keep in mind, we, we talked about this on the show last week, and this has kind of been a running uh, debate among uh, Jeff and your colleagues, uh, Nate, Nate and Ryan. Yep. The, there is people out there who 750 races they love and 550 races they hate. Mm -hmm. This was a 550 race. I don't think it was that good. I think those people are going to be very, very, very loud. In honor of Rick Hendrick. <laughs> 48%. That's a good number. That's a that's a, that's a a good number. Uh, I thought you were going to say 269%. <laughs> Rick's just mashing that like. Oh, are you, uh, you going to go 5% five, five for the call? <laughs> I'm supposed to be the math guy. <laughs> you should have went 5. I thought you were going to go 5. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's a toss-up. I mean, if, if you – there there is some pageantry and tradition that goes into watching a, 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 what is usually a spectacular just day of racing on Memorial Day weekend. So I'm, I'm banking a little bit on nostalgia carrying yeah. that to a 48%. I was uh, banking on a little more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, banking a lot. Uh, I'm going to go 42. I, I don't think this rate is going to resonate. Yeah, I think also when you compare it to Indy or in the day there wasn't a lot of drama I, I just plus the 550 package i just don't think this is going to be it i know and i think there's and i i know i meant five eights five eights yeah <laughs> and i know that it's so twitter is a very you, you shouldn't base things off of twitter but there people are not enamored with the racing at charlotte motor speedway and the oval and i think that's going to impact a little bit so 42 for me 48 for david smith I said 58. 58 for Dustin Long. <laughs> I'm Jordan Bianchi here at The Athletic. Thank you to my colleagues, Dustin Long from NBC Sports, David Smith from NBC Sports and Motorsports Analytics, which I recommend you read because it will make you smarter. Right? What's yes. The, what's the yes. It's the NASCAR website for the thinking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Teardown. We'll catch you next week.